So soy milk would be a better option from an environmental perspective than the most regeneratively produced, most biodynamic, most organic, local, farm next door dairy milk. By far, not even close. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Nicholas Carter, crowd favorite and regular guest on the show. It's been about a year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Always great to be back and chat with you. Yes, um, we've had some some really uh, excellent conversations that I know many, many people have benefited from. And um, I've received so many messages from the community expressing their gratitude 
for for the time that you've given to to share all of your research and knowledge. So um, really, really appreciate the work that you're doing and and taking time to to come back and talk all things dairy with us uh, today. And this is a topic that I guess inter- interests me for a few reasons, and and one is that you and I have had kind of more broad conversations previously. So I think it's interesting to zoom in on a particular food group and um, use that as, a, as an example to, um, to kind of double click on some of the things that we've spoken about with regards to how our food choices affect the environment in, in different ways. Um, and also I had a, a conversation on dairy and health with Alan Flanagan uh, a few weeks ago and that was very much focused on human health, but I think it's important um, for those of us who are in a position to to think about how our food choices also affect the environment around us, and to take all of that information into consideration where we can. Um, before we get into the kind of nitty gritty of dairy, uh, I think it would be good to just go back over some of the higher sort of high level territory on what's contributing to climate change and, and biodiversity loss, et cetera. Um, I'm sure that some people out there have been led to believe or have heard that, you know, really tackling climate change is about addressing fossil fuels. And the focus needs to be on the way we produce energy and, and we shouldn't be having these discussions about agriculture. And, you know, I think I'd go as far as to say is that some folks may have heard that the energy industry um, is pointing the finger to agriculture to shift some of the blame. So how do you sort of reconcile this or can you reconcile this for us? You know, when you think of, of climate change as a whole, what are the major contributors to it that, that sort of threaten our existence, so to speak? And, and where do you, what sort of data are you using to, to kind of determine that? Yeah. So I think I'd start off with just saying that uh, it's absolutely true that we focused almost exclusively on carbon dioxide, mostly from fossil fuels. And there is some good reason for that. Um, This has been the biggest contributor to uh, warming from CO2. Um, And this has happened since industrialization uh, for uh, over 100 years. And we've seen a huge spike in increase in warming since that. At the same time, what's also true is we will not limit uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees, which is the the Paris Agreement goal. Um, 1.5 degrees, the limit of warming since industrialization, without addressing other sectors too. Uh, and then the next sector that needs to be addressed here is uh, by far agriculture. Now, this is just focusing like the topic on CO2. So on CO2 alone, mm. agriculture is very, very important to to address. Um, but I think what kind of led me to, you know, focus my career, focus everything, uh, all my work time on agriculture and food systems is, was not just that, but looking at the wider ecological impacts, uh, looking at the different metrics of other ways we're doing damage to the planet. And when widening that, just for example, uh, 
with greenhouse gases, widening that to methane, uh, which is a greenhouse gas that's 86 times uh, as potent as CO2 over about a 20-year period. So it's kind of like a live fast, die young type greenhouse gas, but it's uh, very potent. Uh, and there's benefits in addressing that. If you address that very quickly, you see atmospheric effects very quickly. Where if, with CO2, we need to also bring that to as close to zero as possible. We're not going to see atmospheric effects for 100 years plus, because that's how long it lasts in the, in the atmosphere. Um, so widening that lens beyond just CO2 from energy is very important for other reasons too. So can I ask you a question on that? Yeah. So the point that you're making there, just to clarify, is that um, methane is a significant opportunity with regards to addressing climate change and the warming of the planet. And you're alluding to the fact that the majority of methane that we're producing is coming from agriculture. So about 40% of all human-caused methane comes directly from agriculture. Uh, n- more than 90% of that figure comes from ruminants and uh, manure from uh, farmed animals. Uh, a little bit also from, from rice, but a very small amount. So yeah, I'm alluding to that. There is like a close second, like the there is a, a number of uh, methane sources from fossil fuels as well, um, namely natural gas produces a lot. So I mean, this is not like an either or thing. We need to address both, but uh, but agriculture is the number one source. I know I'm I'm sort of interrupting your train of thought, and I'll let you continue back to everything that you're explaining with regards to food being so much more than than just carbon. Uh, or greenhouse gas emissions, but while it while it's on the top of my head, something that often comes up here is, well, if the these ruminants are are, are such a, a great contributor to um, greenhouse gas emissions, you know, why weren't they a problem sixty thousand or thousands of years ago when there were the same number of bison as there are cattle in the United States, for example? So this is kind of getting to the same topic of widening the lens. So uh, one, to first answer that question, bison likely did contribute to warming back then. Uh, ruminants, just the way in which they, they work, the way in which their, their, their room in their stomach uh, converts uh, vegetation into methane, they would have. Uh, but back then there was not the industrialization of the world today. There, there was a bit of a kind of a buffer, you could say. Um, but then this is like a good kind of segue into like why you should look at other things as well. These were wild ruminants that traveled very long distances. They were, they're built differently than, than cattle. So their physiological shape is, is different. Uh, they were able to, to run faster and cover big, huge distances uh, of, of prairie and grassland, likely contributing to less overgrazing. Um, and there's also kind of like biological differences between between bison and cattle, which I'd be happy to go into. One one main one being that they don't tend to graze nearly as much around um, waterways, uh, which cattle are, are known for kind of damaging riparian areas and wetlands, and they tend to kind of crowd around in groups in, in that sense. Um, and like there's all kinds of ecological research on the difference between uh, wild animals and domesticated animals as as a wider kind of category. Um, mm-hmm. Cattle are non-native species to the majority of places they're grazing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I can go on and on, but basically it's important to to look at these other kind of uh, metrics beyond just um, 
perhaps methane. So it's not the same. It's not a good comparison. Uh, people make it all the time to me too. And so what I'm hearing to kind of summarize some of this, and I, I want to let you continue explaining what, where you were going initially, but is that when we reduce this conversation to greenhouse gases, when we're talking about fossil fuels versus food, we're underappreciating the more, um, the, the, the wider aspects of, I guess, the, the ecological footprint of our diet that goes beyond these greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I mean, one, one other thing with bison is like, even when they're part of like a predator-prey relationship, like their biomass is not being removed from the land. So they're also contributing to enhancing biodiversity around them through uh, being a food source in the wild. So, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a massive list of dif- differences between them, but it's been kind of a scapegoat uh, answer of saying, well, cattle's amazing. So said, said, said differently, um, what, what you're saying there about biomass, if someone's hearing biomass for the first time, it, um, it might go over, over someone's head. Um, are you, you're saying that in the wild, when a, when a bison um, dies, it's, it's consumed by the land or the animals that are within that ecosystem Whereas when we set up a sort of um, some sort of regenerative agriculture um, type practice that's that's marketed as as mimicking nature, um, truly mimicking nature would see that animal left within the ecosystem, not taken out and and removed. And why is that Absolutely. important? It's important for biodiversity um, and uh, adding other food sources for other animals around. Uh, it's important to contribute to um, what was natively on that land before. Um, and I'd love to get into kind of like biodiversity too at some point. Like this is such a huge metric that mm-hmm. um, is barely paid attention to. And the consequences of a biodiversity collapse um, arguably would be as catastrophic as the climate change that we focus on today. Yeah, let's, let's break that down because it's a buzzword. Um, but I'm not sure that we fully appreciate what it means and what the the net effect of biodiversity loss is. And just before you sort of start to break that down, have you seen the Our World in Data, um, the resource that Hannah Ritchie, I think she updated it recently. It's called Environmental Impacts of Food and it has that very interactive calculator where you can put in a, a food and, and, and then change the... Uh, the environmental impact that you're interested in, whether it's biodiversity or water or greenhouse gases. Have you seen that? I have. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I've seen that. Uh, I see almost everything they put out or they put out great work. Yeah. I think that that's, that's just a great tool that I might put into the resources for, for listeners because you can, um, in a, in a sort of visual way, really appreciate a lot of the things that we're, we're talking about here. And, and they have a nice piece on, on biodiversity um, and there's that stat that gets thrown out a bit, um, Nicholas, that 94% of mammal biomass, excluding humans, is livestock. Yeah. So and let's dig into that. Why is this a problem? So across the research, it, it was shown multiple times in, uh, th- throughout just studies of what uses the most land, what displaces land. Uh, these are good kind of metrics to consider beyond just CO2. And uh, biodiversity, by far, the biggest impact of that is agricultural expansion. And more specifically, what expands agricultural land is animal source foods, 
mostly grazing, uh, mostly grazing for beef or dairy, uh, but also the huge amount of land used to uh, to grow feed crops, uh, mostly for confined animals. So uh, we need to look at kind of where this um, this land use expansion is happening, what kind of biodiversity it's displacing. And um, you can date this back. You can see this kind of downward shift in wild ecosystems that um, are, are of huge ecological importance. You can see that downward spiral uh, dating back to um, the agricultural revolution and, and shifting and increasing in animal source foods. And it's a very interesting history to see how this is happening. What's, what's sad about it is we're not really learning our lesson of how we can address biodiversity. And there's other other causes too of biodiversity loss, like uh, logging would be one too, but uh, but by far the biggest is agriculture. So you and I have, ta- have spoken about this before, but what are people to make of this idea that that say it's the way that you do animal agriculture that affects biodiversity? And you know, there's there's certainly a lot of hype right now around regenerative grazing, which I just mentioned um, before, and and I think often that it's being positioned to the public at least as a solution to improve biodiversity and therefore if you're buying regenerative agriculture um, products you're you're voting for a more biodiverse um, environment an environment that's that's thriving and my question to you on that is a is there data and, and validity to that idea of grazing in a certain way not being deleterious and actually adding to the environment and improving biodiversity? Um, and second to that, compared to what is that? Is that mm. compared to you know a, a very poor method of grazing? And yes, relatively it's better, but is there better solutions? I'd love to to sort of unpack this and and everything that you've kind of learned through your research. With biodiversity on even the best regenerative uh, pasture, uh, regenerative certified, whatever anyone will take as um, you know that even means, because there's lack of certifications on what that actually means. But let's pretend it's the best type of uh, of grazing of cattle. Maybe it's also a certain amount of commercial stock size too, because you can't just have a couple to 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 run a business. Um, you would likely get some more birds. You might get some more insects. You're not going to get the the natively important uh, cornerstone species that uh, that ranching would have displaced. Uh, and exactly what you said, it's compared to what. So there, it's on it's on a spectrum, of course, too. If there's a massively overgrazed area of area of land, uh, or perhaps there's not even much vegetation, they're bringing in feed. Uh, of course, shifting styles would be slightly beneficial. You could you could bring in some more biodiversity in that way. Um, if you're comparing as well to a uh, very intensive monocrop, uh, perhaps of feed crops, uh, which which are the, among the most intensive monocrops, and you that land perhaps is abandoned and then it's picked up and uh, grazed lightly, perhaps with like a rotational grazing. Uh, that this is where you see the studies saying you're going to see some more biodiversity with this type of grazing, but you're not comparing it to what was natively there on that land before. You're not even comparing it to perhaps down the road where there's uh, there's a forest, there's a wetland, there is um, whatever native 
natively was there before uh, either uh, agriculture, essentially. Hmm. So when you do that comparison, then you see that uh, in terms of biodiversity, untouched land is by far the best way to go. This brings us back to something we have sort of spoken about before and and I'm conscious of not going down too much of a rabbit hole because I do want to get into dairy and a bit more of the specifics related to that but it it gets us thinking about incentives for agriculture those involved in agriculture um, because what I'm hearing from what you just said then is when we when we look at this problem and we're we're comparing something to a worse form of farming and we're saying that it's better but it's not the best option um then we're, we're making the assumption that that land is meant to be used for some form of agriculture right and it, it's a bit of a bitter pill for people to swallow to say you know if you're a farmer and you own this land and, and you say well you shouldn't use it for any farming it should be returned to to a forest um you know I can understand that that farmer needs to be incentivized to 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 want to reforest or return it to a natural ecosystem that's not producing calories. Um, so, is that the kind of primary barrier that you see here? Is it that the regenerative agriculture or grazing industry are uh, are they doing the best with the current incentives that are in place? I think the regenerative agriculture industry is a symptom of industrial agriculture as a whole this is a this is a way to uh, alleviate the the poor image that they've been received for animal welfare issues for uh very intensive uh environmental issues so th this is a rebranding but largely of the same um same massive large companies so i think that's important to acknowledge first uh second there absolutely is like a misalignment of incentives still there are still uh I mean, there's tons, tons of, of great farmers that want to do what's best for their land. And perhaps there's some uh, learning curves in terms of understanding what that is. There's certainly some lack of incentives of using at least some of their land for conservation purposes. Certainly, if you shift towards growing uh, plant proteins, uh, you're going to lose use far less land. And you should be incentivized for using less land and if you still even if you if you still own that land, you can use a lot of the rest of the land to revert it and rewild it uh, and draw down carbon, perhaps increase some biodiversity. And this is certainly something that's being explored with different uh, carbon schemes across the country, across the globe, really. And if someone's thinking, I've heard this before, but ultimately, this let's say for for a country like Australia or America where uh, potentially there's there's land at least that people will claim that is not suitable for growing crops and um, therefore can only be used for grazing and if you're suggesting that you're downsizing that industry well where's the food going to come from that's going to require more importation of food which then gets us to this topic of local versus importing and, and what's better for the environment. So I think it's worth just um, touching on that briefly. So with regards to marginal land, um, it's not marginal to a native wildlife that was displaced. And that's often mm -hmm. forgot. We, like, with this term marginal land, we think that humans need to use every single acre of land on the planet. And I think that that is just a flawed mentality in the first place. 
Um, of course, there is land that is not as suitable for growing crops. I think that's far less than people making this claim understand. And the reality is that if we shift to more plant-based diets, we'd feed far more people because we wouldn't be cycling. Uh, we wouldn't be cycling crops to animals at about a ten percent conversion rate. Uh, so you're automatically losing all kinds of uh, plants that are grown right there. And if you're grazing uh, cattle on very degraded land, then there's not going to be much in terms of like pasture to feed them anyway. So you're going to need to bring in feed and water depending on where you're in the world. So this as well is not a, a, a functional use of that land. A better use of that land would be to revert it back and, and restore it. And re- you're not going to restore that through um, attempts to to graze it because that's just not how the science has shown is, is, is done. If I recall correctly, it's about 50% of all habitable land we use for agriculture. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And um, about 83% of all that agricultural land is used for animal agriculture. Mostly grazing. Second would be feed crops. Mm. And um, as you know, we've talked about this before, it inefficiently only returns about 18% of the global calorie supply or about 37% of the, the global protein supply. So there's massive loss that just happens with this type of food. And that comes with a huge environmental footprint that is just inherent. Is, is better mm-hmm. and more efficient as animal farming becomes, there's still these biophysics that you can't shake. And, and this is what I'm noticing. Yeah, I think that's a really important statistic for people to remember. And it speaks to the inefficiencies of producing animal protein that 83% of all land use for agriculture is dedicated to animal agriculture, yet that only gives us 18% of our total protein. So if we were to see uh, global shifts to say like an eat lancet style dietary pattern, how much land would, would we actually free up? Because what I'm hearing from you is that we could use far less land and produce just as many calories and along the way improve the, the healthfulness of the diet as well. Yeah, this has been mapped out a number of times in different studies. Um, from one would be the, the poor and Nemechek study in 2018. They showed that you'd free up 3 billion hectares of land in the hypothetical scenario where the whole world shifted to plant-based. And just for context of what that is, that's the size of uh, the entire continent of Africa. So it's just massive how much land you'd free up. And it's not just land that wouldn't be ecologically important. As we know, like there's so much uh, agriculture uh, in terms of grazing, in terms of feed crops happening in some of the most important biologically diverse areas of the world, uh, certainly in the Amazon, in Brazil, um, and elsewhere too. So we have a choice. We have a choice to shift as far as possible and look at ways to do this, to plant-based diets and free up land. Or what's largely happening, and we can talk about this as we get into dairy, is mm-hmm. the, the Western diet is being promoted to countries as they, as they develop. And we're seeing this. Mm-hmm. This is, this is the, the richer countries are becoming, the more they're adopting this uh, animal-centric diet. And so you're going to be using far more land if you do this. And um, it's land we don't have. Which I guess speaks to our responsibility to, to help these um, countries transition in a way where they avoid 
going down the, the various paths of destruction that we've seen both for the environment and for public health. Um, something just quickly before we, we sort of shift gears a little bit that I've seen Corey Hancock and, and a few others sort of make this claim around, and it comes back to this topic that you're talking about with regards to lands, lands not marginal to the local ecosystem and the wild animals that would otherwise live there that have been displaced. There's nothing marginal about that. And I, I think that's a fantastic point, something that we should all appreciate um, because over the last 200, 300 years, arguably, um, humans have, have very much had this mindset of, of just dominating land and what can we extract um, from land in terms of, of calories, which I think most of us can agree is, is probably not the mindset that's going to serve us best and we need to be a bit more careful about how we're producing our calories and a bit more conscious of, of other, um, other types of life forms that we share this planet with. Um, but the claim that I hear here is, okay, well, you're saying just to restore this and, and turn it back to grasslands or forests, but let's take a country like Australia that's really battle, battling with wildfires. You need to manage the land in order to reduce the risk of these wildfires. And we saw some terrible fires a couple of years ago. And the claim that I'm seeing put forward is that actually cattle, um, cows, and cows in particular, are, are good at helping um, keep some of the the sort of I guess um, underbrush or, or grass grassy areas um, maintain them so that they're not as much of a fire hazard. Is there is there any validity to this idea that we need to use cattle uh, to prevent wildfires? From everything I've read on the topic, and I'm not an expert in that specific um, topic, so let me just flat out say that. But um, from everything I've read on the topic, it seems that overgrazing has been a, a major cause that has increased chances of fires. And part of the reason is because it's changed the native grasses. Um, it's displaced native grasses. There's not a good mix anymore. Wherever there's cattle grazing, typically they prefer certain types of grass. And this, this means that you, what you end up having on these pastures that you think are lush and full of biodiversity um, is you have a monoculture of grass of exactly what they, they want to eat. So this is not a good recipe for, uh, for you know, avoiding fires, avoiding fires. Even in, in a forest, you get kind of runaway um, forest fires when you kind of replant single species, uh, you're not protecting the, the native forest, um, you're not even attempting to kind of... Uh, mix up different native species in this area. So this is why you get kind of runaway fires. So I just think that this is like, they're seeing that grazing has caused um, this kind of increased risk of fire. So they're rebranding it as a way of, well, we need cows to do this to prevent more in the future. I don't buy it. I haven't seen good evidence for it. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. 
Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. In previous episodes, you mentioned that red meat and dairy are typically the most damaging foods in our diets. I think it would be good to summarize um, why this is the case, say, relative to other animal foods and to, to plant foods and um, some of the things we've touched on here. But, but what is it that is unique about red meat and dairy that makes them more damaging to our environment than these other foods? Put very simply, the largest cause of agricultural methane um, is from uh, red meat, beef and dairy. Um, one of the largest causes of human-caused methane globally is from them. So this is, uh, this is not a good source of, of, uh, of feeding the world when you have one of the largest sources of methane, which is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. The, uh, the Intergov- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, the sixth assessment report, showed uh, just this past year that since industrialization, methane has warmed the planet uh, anywhere from about 33 to as high as about 44% if you factor in some of the other gases that have caused some cooling. So methane is a huge important factor here. So this is one reason why uh, 
we should be first looking at beef and dairy to to eliminate from from diets. The second one, uh, which would be a close second, would be they they disproportionately use the most land. Uh, using the most land uh, displaces native ecosystems that we need. It also prevents the drawdown of carbon that we need to uh, rebalance the atmosphere to something that's more livable in the future. We we need to draw down carbon. The best source of doing that is is forest and uh, native protected ecosystems and rewilding. So this is preventing that, and it will continue to do so as long as we continue amplifying this type of food. Okay, so let's let's zoom in a little bit on dairy here, uh, and perhaps it makes sense to to start at a very high level. Uh, what's the what's the current state of global dairy production and and consumption and with all of the conversation that's happening about planetary health and methane, would you say that this industry is getting more environmentally friendly? Um, and if so, how how are they going about doing that? This is a really good question. This this gets into the very interesting aspects uh, centered around dairy. So um, big picture, there's 270 million uh, dairy cows throughout the world producing milk. Um, and it is a spectrum in terms of how much milk they're producing and their environmental footprint. But the trends show this. Uh, in, in richer countries, uh, the US, Canada, uh, certainly in the UK, uh, Australia, you have, um, you have a tendency to um, put more dairy cows in confinement. You control their food. Uh, you selectively feed them what will enhance uh, milk production. Uh, this typically decreases animal welfare, so that's why you see all kinds of uh, issues with um, with with dairy in terms of the ethical side. Um, but in terms of environmental footprint, uh, confining them reduces land use. Uh, it gets them to uh, an age and milk production that is more commercially viable. So that's what you have happening um, in these rich countries, and. They're saying that from this, it's more environmentally friendly. And in some ways that's true. But if you're just increasing efficiency and then doing more of it and producing more, then mm. that's not a net benefit environmentally, especially when there's, it's not something that's necessary. There's far better al- alternatives. But to, to look at kind of what's happening with dairy too is people are shifting away from it. Uh, demand in these rich countries has gone far down, continues to go down year over year. And despite production still going up, these large companies are finding other ways to use milk, putting milk in things that weren't, didn't have milk before, uh, finding alternative kind of luxury cheeses to, to cater to a new market. Mm -hmm. This is what's happening with dairy to kind of stay relevant. Uh, and don't get me wrong. There's still very large consumption of dairy, of course. But it, there's all kinds of trends that shows that we've peaked in terms of rich countries, in terms of how much dairy we want, and we're seeing alternatives. Uh, there's there's all kinds of consolidation too on the production on, on the production side too. You have uh, a lot of small dairy firms, uh, even me, medium sized, that just aren't uh, able to make it a business anymore. And then you have consolidation where there's really only like major large uh, dairy conglomerates left. And with that comes with huge additional lobbying power. Um, in certain countries, so in Canada where I am, there is one of the most sketchy kind of management schemes 
with dairy across the world. And I think the U.S. is trying to do something similar. What happens there is people that produce milk, these companies, uh, have a certain quota to, to hit. And there's like an insurance, right, on this is how much you produce, no matter what the demand is. So it's not really running a uh, demand and supply type business at that point. And but what you're happening is what you're seeing is the the demand is going far down. So you're having milk that's that's dumped. You're having milk that's not used. There's all kinds of waste. They're finding new ways just to to give milk away. And this is this is just not it's not something that we should be seeing. And it's also not a good sign for the dairy industry either. So I suspect that this is worrisome on that side too. This is something that you can't. It's not sustainable in that in that sense of the word. So yeah, the, there's all kinds of different regional trends that are happening. There is a big increase in in plant based milks that are uh, eating into some of this market share. I would say that of all the kind of plant based alternatives, plant based milks are uh, the ones that are displacing um, the animal sourced version the most. Um, people that are not even eating uh, anything close to plant-based are swapping out to plant-based milks and they're doing that for all kinds of different reasons. Yeah, that's terrible about the 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 dumping and the just food waste in general. We need to be so much better at at reducing the amount of calories that are produced that are wasted, particularly if they're calories from animal foods that have come at such an environmental cost, such an environmental expense just to to produce them and then to have those not be consumed is just a, an enormous um, waste. So I hope that people are looking at that. What, one thing that you said that's really interesting, and I think this will strike people, is that in some ways, it, there's an ethical dilemma here if you're consuming dairy, from what I hear, from what you said, in that in some ways, conventional factory farm dairy, which is less eth- ethical from an animal welfare perspective, could be more ethical, more sustainable in certain aspects from an environmental perspective. And then I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued if the opposite sort of rings true, which um, it would make sense based on what I just said. We see marketing that sort of organic regenerative dairy you know, is better for animal welfare. Um, and I'm sure in some ways it is, but from what I'm hearing from you and I'm kind of um, jumping to a conclusion here, is that the the organic regenerative dairy in some ways may be worse for the environment? So in these situations, um, you could kind of categorize as three things. So I'll kind of just lay out the differences between them as best as possible. So con- conventional dairy is, as I described, it's it's now known as um, a lot of feedlots, sometimes on pasture, depending on where you are, but a lot of confinement, a lot of management of feed to produce as much milk as possible and it comes with all kinds of um animal ethical issues with um organic um certified and these change per country but typically about 30 percent uh of their diet comes from uh grass and they're given access to a certain amount of, of pasture and this is kind of like to get this organic certified label this uses more land this will reduce the yield. So in terms of like per per milk liter or whatever unit of measurement you want to use, it's going to be a higher environmental footprint. Um, and, you know, when they don't, uh, when they're not on on pasture, 
they're they're typically um with organic they're fed um uh food food that's not uh doesn't have hormones or synthetic pesticides or herbicides used um sorry antibiotic hormones are, are used they are actually sorry they are actually used um for organic um uh dairy and what happens there is uh even though you need to bring in uh, these cows into confinement sometimes. What they say is that if they're sick, then, then they could be provided some antibiotic. Um, but what's happening is it's not like a veterinarian that's provided this. Usually it's a farmer and it's like a judgment call. So what you need to end up doing there is um, kind of separate out that milk and, and dump it. But there's been all kinds of uh, violations all across the world where they end up detecting uh, antibiotics in the milk and they have to end up in organic Obviously, milk. that's not in organic milk as well and this is not something i don't think that deliberately being done i think there's all kinds of pressures on you know these farmers to make a business um which is very difficult at, at this stage too but it's happening it's happening and there's still antibiotics being uh, overused which um is possibly going to create all kinds of issues in the future which would be a whole kind of topic on its own and then so with regenerative regenerative with dairy is far less of kind of a, a buzzword as it is with beef um but typically what you have and there's a couple examples that have been technically certified as regenerative and what they're doing here is they're integrating um cover crops they're integrating other crops on their land uh ideally it's it's compost and green manures too, but all the regenerative dairy farms that I've seen too are actually not using that, which would be more beneficial. They're instead um, integrating uh, all kinds of chickens too, and uh, perhaps pigs too, and, and using a lot of manure. Uh, and what what they're finding it's a it's, like I mentioned from the start, it's a game of trade offs. You you are probably using more land. You're going to produce less uh, milk. Um, and as using more land, you're going to displace more biodiversity likely or prevent rewilding of some sense. Um, and when, when cows eat more grass, I think it's very important to understand too, uh, the, the more fibrous diet that cows eat, the more methane is produced. Um, there's been some studies that showed as much as four times as much methane is produced with grass finished, uh, beef or, uh, more pasture for dairy versus the alternative. So this is not the way to go in that sense. So in that sense, it's, it's a lot worse. So let me ask you a question here. Um, I think regenerative agriculture, both the beef and the dairy, are kind of being put forward as the solution to animal agriculture. Um, and I think many people in that camp will say they don't support factory farming. They think it's unethical. They don't like the, the um, impact on the environment. But from what I'm hearing from you, if we were to try and use regenerative agriculture to produce the amount of meat or dairy that we're producing today, it would require great destruction to the environment in order to have enough land to produce that amount of calories. So this doesn't really sound like a, a sort of global solution that we can sort of presume will help us you know, just clean up animal agriculture and, and not have to change the amount of animal foods in our diet. Yeah. So just looking at, um, 
the states in in particular with this, there was a study that looked at uh, it wasn't necessarily regenerative agriculture, but it was a shift to um, uh, grass finished beef. And uh, of important context here is regenerative would use even more than typical uh, grass finished beef. But the study um, showed land. that uh, if it, more land, yes, or more land. Um, so if if Americans were to not alter their beef consumption. U.S. beef would require 63 to 270% more land if the U.S. wanted to match the current factory farm beef to, to grass-finished. And, um, you know, this is already understanding that they're already the leading source of, uh, of the leading user of land. So this would use far more. Typically, as you, as you know, Simon, like you don't see that this kind of theory of change to regenerative agriculture, it doesn't come with this prerequisite of you need to massively reduce your um your your meat and dairy because like i mentioned before like these are not kind of one-off situations this is um this is the the big kind of beef industry that's kind of rebranding in this way uh this isn't this isn't a ploy to be ecologically uh minded in my opinion i think this is um this is a tactic to greenwash beef uh, there's very loose regulations on it, I think, for a reason. Uh, there's very sketchy certification processes, which there's all kinds of um, investigative journalists that have point holes in this kind of whole certification process to be regenerative. There's been farms that have been not even fully existing that have been branded as regenerative farms um, on like official certifications. So, and I'd be happy to kind of share some, you know, links to that uh, for people to read up. But yeah, so I think... Even if these, you know, have perfect regulations, this is not where we want to go with food. We want to we want to shift away from these inefficient, high land use, high methane emitting sources of food. Yeah, I think those the the link that you're referring to there, or the experience was was from Spencer, um, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 We'll put that into the show notes. I think that's a very interesting experience and story that for me, highlighted the real lack of regulation. And, um, you know, it's easy to make regenerative claims, but um, it doesn't seem like it's being regulated to a level that I think most of us would assume um, things that would, would be in place to, to sort of support a, a farm's claims about being regenerative um, may not be there at the moment anyway. Um, just to clarify something on the the study that you just mentioned there about um, land use and the sixty to two hundred and seventy percent extra land that would be required if 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 the states shifted from conventional beef um, production to grass fed, I think some people listening will be thinking, well, does that actually does that factor in the cropland? So is that saying if you take all of the factory farms today where there are cattle? plus all of the cropland in the United States that's used to feed those cows, are you saying it's 60 to 270% extra land on top of all of that? As far as I understand the study from before, it's, it's in addition, yes. Right, so that would, that would come at the expense of other wild ecosystems, deforestation, to make room for that. Mm-hmm. Yep. What about other... Um, forms of, of dairy. So um, sometimes goat and, and sheep um, dairy comes up and um, certain claims around 
these potentially being better for the environment. I know that goat's milk uh, in particular has become more popular in recent years because it's slightly lower in lactose compared to to cow's milk. Is there any merit in the idea that that these animals being smaller are more environmentally friendly and, and these would be better options than dairy that's derived from cows? Like slightly better. I mean, they're smaller. Like you said, they're a smaller animal. They would use a bit less land, but they're still ruminants. Uh, they still emit all kinds of methane. There's still been studies that look at comparisons of different types of food and, um, and what has the most uh, CO2, methane, uh, land. And if you're switching to uh, goat's milk for environmental reasons, don't. Uh, if you're doing this because you are transitioning away from that, um, you're working towards uh, reducing it much more, like go for it. There's all kinds of different uh, ways in which people change, of course, right? And uh, I think it's important to meet people where they are. Um, but I think it's also important to be honest with ourselves, honest with what the, the scientific data shows. Um, and, you know, don't fall for greenwashing that this is like going to, to be something that we can extrapolate across the whole world. Um, it's just not. It's, it's not uh, a source of food that, that can feed a growing population that, that should be in our diet. It, it really shouldn't if we're talking about the environment. So what would you say then if, if someone's come across certain claims uh, that you know the dairy industry or certain farms plan to be net zero or, or carbon neutral by 2030 2050 because there might be some people listening thinking well hang on i've read this or i've heard this and maybe dairy in my diet isn't going to be such a big problem because the dairy industry is changing and they're going to build a, a very sustainable dairy industry in the next 10 20 years is this industry spin or is there legitimate ways for the dairy industry to do this that are supported by, by data that you've read? This is a very important question, and this is what's going to be happening over the next several years, is you're going to be having all kinds of uh, dairy companies and dairy products that claim to be net zero. And uh, I dug into this recently for, um, for some research and, and writing that will be coming out shortly. Um, largely how this is happening is this new metric of measuring non-CO2 greenhouse gases, so mostly methane. And typically how you measure a, the impact of something like methane is uh, you do what's called a, a, a global warming potential. So you compare the impacts of CO2 uh, and you, you know that methane is X amount more uh, potent over a certain timeline. So over 20 years, methane is 86 times more potent. Um, and over 100 years, it's about uh, 26 times more potent. And you kind of do that exchange rate, we'll say, just like you're doing exchange rate of, of, mo of money. Mm -hmm. And it's not a perfect system. There is issues. That's why there's good research to kind of improve this and better track uh, the observable warming we have. Um, but the Paris Agreement supports a, a global warming potential of 100 years, which is conservative. I would say 20 years would be more important, but um, you know, 100 is what they went with, and 100 is kind of like the general consensus. So where I'm going with this is there's this new metric called GWP star, um, and it's uh, from from very credible scientists out of Oxford University and elsewhere, uh, mostly uh, Miles Allen and Michelle Kane. 
mm-hmm. they they put together this new way of measuring the changing rate of methane. And and what this does is it it unintentionally or intentionally it ignores historical impacts from methane from whatever if it's a sector or country whatever you want to measure. Uh, it also ignores a lot of the current stock of methane. But what it does is it measures pretty good the changing rate over time. So say you're a country like New Zealand, um, one of the, the biggest um, emitters of methane. That's where Fonterra, uh, the largest dairy company in the world, is headquartered. And what they, um, what they could do with GWP Star, and by the way, they're huge fans of this, uh, not by, you know, surprise, surprise. Uh, but what they can do is uh, they can show that if they reduce the emissions from dairy, if they reduce methane by, say, 20%, from a very high number, they can reduce it by 20%, they can then show that they're technically net zero, but they're ignoring the past 10 years, 20 years, 30 years of impacts they've already had. And ultimately, this brings up a kind of like an ethical question, because you know I think, and I think many, many scientists agree when, when this has come up, that historical sectors, countries, um, companies that have emitted the most and have done the most damage are disproportionately responsible for reducing the most. Mm. So what GWP Star does is, a, is almost makes like a clean slate where, you know, maybe you can reward this company for doing a bit of work, but they've already done a huge amount of damage. So that's not an accurate way of, of looking at this. And then you have countries that are, uh, you know, developing, perhaps they're just trying to meet their basic needs, meet basic food security. And in turn, uh, they're perhaps the only source of, of food they have might be dairy uh, or beef. Uh, they might increase that a bit, but they're going to be pe- penalized uh, in a major way through this GWP star. Meanwhile, the US, New Zealand, other countries are, are saying, great, we're net zero, follow us. Do it, do it how we get to uh, do, uh, do it with GWP star. So um, it's, it's, it's a very sketchy thing that's happening. Uh, I don't think scientifically the the metric is an issue. I think it's kind of like a tool in the toolkit of measuring these different things. But if you have one-off use of this and then you use that to claim that you're net zero, then that's where the issue uh, comes up. And to, to me, if I were to create this new tool um, and my goal, which I have to imagine their goal is too, would be to try to address climate change, try to reduce methane, reduce CO2. If I saw before this was even really fully official, I saw some of the biggest methane emitters in the world, the dairy sector, uh, the beef sector, um, co-opt this, rave about it, and be pumped up about this new way of, of measuring methane and then claim to be net zero in you know a decade, I'd be pissed. I, mm. I, would, I would stand up for it and say, no, that's not how you use that. Can you clarify, clarify net, clarify net zero, um, if someone's hearing that for the first time? Yeah, so net zero emissions. So what this term is, this is part of the Paris Agreement. Uh, it's to uh, the emissions that are released uh, are equal to what's being drawn down. So um, th- that's one very simple way of putting it. Basically, it's it's trying to reduce your emissions as low as possible, and also drawing down some carbon. So, so in turn, you're not net contributing to warming. 
So dairy is saying they're not net contributing to warming because they're measuring it differently. They're measuring it with this new way of looking at methane changes over time versus what they've already done in terms of damages. Mm-hmm. So have you heard the Miles or the, the guys from Oxford University, have they come out and, and spoken about this and have they, um, have they spoke about misuse of the tool or is that something that you expect to see in the coming year? So they've, they've taken some criticism from um, many other academics and scientists looking at this and they have changed the tool slightly where now it's um, considered a uh, 25% stock and 75% flow. And, and what I mean by that is uh, when, when you factor a greenhouse gas as a stock, it means it's like accumulating in the atmosphere where before it was 100%, they consider like 100% flow, which means that it just kind of comes and goes, but that's not how methane works. Mm. It, uh, it still stays in the atmosphere for at least 10 years. Um, and during that time, it's very damaging. So they've taken some criticism and changed the kind of metric uh, to slightly factor that in. But it doesn't factor in the level of current stock or historical stock that it still needs to. So there's still issues. And meanwhile, they're presenting this. Um, Miles Allen and Michelle Kane, they're presenting this to um, sustainable beef forms and um, people like Frank Mitloner that are just highly paid lobbyists. Why are they doing that? Like, I, I, I'm all I'm all for letting them kind of get get kind of better, and I'm, I'm all for improvements in industry still. But I don't understand if your overall goal is reducing methane, that um, you'd be allowing it, the one of the largest sources of methane to co-opt it to not reduce methane much. That doesn't make sense to me. If you were to kind of steel man your position here on this and your view on this, um, and perhaps put yourself in Frank's shoes. And and uh, I appreciate that um, he has affiliations with industry, but what what would he be saying right now in response to this, with regards to why this should be how we measure um, the the um, the impact of the dairy industry on greenhouse gases, and um, why this calculation and um, claim about net zero is in fact um, an accurate one. I think Frank lives in a world where he doesn't think that there's alternatives that exist. Uh, so, and if that was the world of today where we don't have alternatives to dairy, then some of what he said would be more true. Um, because he's a huge proponent of U.S. dairy, and this needs to be the manner in which to produce dairy all across the world. Um, one could say it's almost like a form of um, Western promotion of this diet across the world um, as, as a means to do it. So uh, he's been in those conferences where GWP star has been presented. Um, he, he does work with UC Davis and they've uh, been very favorable of this uh, unsurprisingly. So um, yeah, he's all about it. He's all about this new metric and he's a highly paid lobbyist. Um, so, and, and it's not, that's not the only reason why he's wrong. I, I think he would say that this is, there's a few things with GWP star that that um, are beneficial um, in in one way measuring over time. Like I mentioned, like it, it does show a pretty good um, indication of how methane impacts warming over time, but it doesn't look at the current stock or historical stock. So this kind of like ethical component that's, that is ignored um, is again kind of back to the start of this entire podcast. Like you're looking at one-off little metrics without considering the bigger picture. 
and in turn making your industry or business uh, look good. And you need to look much wider. And um, I mean, I can't put myself in what he would say, but I, I mean, I, I'd be, I'd be happy to, to kind of point holes in it, which I have openly many times. Uh, biodiversity is never mentioned um, in almost anything he's talking about. Um, mm-hmm. He mentions all kinds of things about increasing yields, which has some importance, not in rich countries, with, with all kinds of abundance of other options. Okay. Well, that, that's a nice segue into other options. What are the alternative options here if, if one's not to consume dairy and how do they stack up when we're considering all of these various aspects of um, planetary health? The, the greenhouse gases, water use, biodiversity, eutrophication, um, et cetera. And some interesting questions often pop up here because, you know, you'll, you'll read something about almond milk and um, the amount of water perhaps that's being used or soy milk will come up and the inevitable questions about deforestation in, in the Amazon um, pop up. So keen to explore some of this with you and perhaps we just start at a very very high level here compared to say dairy milk um how do plant-based milks sort of stack up at a high level so there's variants but across all environmental metrics that i could possibly list uh they're far better than dairy um so they use far less land they use far less greenhouse gas emissions, uh, less fresh water use, and less eutrophication. So less uh, damage to uh, waterways causing dead zones. Uh, if you're looking at the different ones, like there is still like a bit of a spectrum to, um, you know, trade-offs between each one. I would say in terms of looking at all these metrics together, uh, what looks like the best option for like a, a plant-based milk would be either soy or... Um, oat milk and perhaps even hemp milk. So there's a number of options there that I think uh, would provide the best options. Something with almonds. Almonds is, um, you know, probably nutritionally, probably one of the least beneficial. I mean, you could, you could correct me if I'm wrong there, but I I would say that's pretty clear. Uh, But with almond milk, uh, it does use quite a bit of uh, water, but still far less than, than dairy. And a lot of almonds are grown in California. A lot of these comparisons that that people would have claimed that uh, the cows use more would not have factored in the mass amount of uh, alfalfa uh, grasses that are uh, grown uh, off farm and supplemented as feed. And the reason why alfalfa is, is used is because it was it was shown to really increase like the yield of uh, of of milk. But they use all kinds of water. And so you need to factor in this when you're factoring in the, the water uh, footprint of, of dairy. So, um, yeah, there's, there's trade-offs between each of these other ones. But across all the metrics, um, these plant milks are far superior. What's the, I mean, and it's hard for you to be specific here, but kind of if we're thinking about the magnitude of the difference, whether it's um, you know, uh, greenhouse gases uh, or water use. So we're talking about sort of half the amount when you choose to swap the the dairy milk for a plant based milk, or is it bigger than that? So with greenhouse gases, it's um, uh, three times less emissions. Uh, with with land use, it's about ten times. Um, water use, 
compared to most plant milks would be uh, dairy would use 20 times as much fresh water withdrawals. And um, like just for context too, uh, in terms of fresh water use out of any industry, agriculture is by far the biggest use. And uh, dairy is a big reason for that. So in, with land use comes biodiversity too, right? So this is, this is a major concern with, with dairy. And those differences are, are whether you look at it on a per calorie basis or per gram of protein basis, right? Yeah, like this, those numbers there I'm quoting were per liter. And um, mm-hmm. there's a good write-up on that from Our World in Data, which is based on off the research from Porin Nemchek um, in 2018. Okay. What about biodiversity? Because often... Um, I read certain things online where people say, well, you know, oat and, and, and peas, these are, these are going to be grown as, as monocrops and this is destructive to the environment. It's going to reduce biodiversity and be heavily sprayed with pesticides and herbicides. Um, so they come with their own set of, of problems um, and then a, a kind of um, – additional claim that's related to biodiversity, particularly with almonds, is the the potential negative implications with regards to the bee population. Yeah, so I'll answer that one first. So with almonds, um, one of the biggest issues with bee populations is just lack of uh, wild space, wildflowers. Uh, rewilding would be one of the best things you could do for bee populations. Um, so you know, I think that's first to acknowledge. So then you get a factoring, okay, what's using the most land? What's preventing that from happening? Well, that's animal source foods. So that's with regards to to almonds and the impacts that would have on uh, bees. I, I do understand that almonds do have um, some disproportionate impacts on bees relative to the other plant milks. So that would be something to consider still. Uh, but I think it's important to have this in context when mm-hmm. someone might be mentioning that to you, uh, not understanding the other impacts on bees. Uh, what, what I get the most with this is, uh, the topic of soy. Uh, people think that if you just shift to soy milk, you're going to deforce the Amazon. Right. Um, and what people don't understand there is, uh, only 6% of soy grown globally goes to human food. Um, 81% of soy processing is in the form of like what they call like cake. Um, and 99% of that goes to farmed animals. Um, there's been a number of different studies that looked at this topic. Um, and they also looked at it from like an economic standpoint of like, what is the economic driver of why soy is, is being grown? And of course, uh, oil is uh, a small part of it, but uh, by far the biggest economic driver for why soy is grown in the first place is for um, for this cake for this um, mm-hmm. um, uh, feed crops. Uh, so soy is not inherently the problem. And, and soy is also like being a legume. It can fix nitrogen. Um, it's, it's actually a really good crop that you can grow, but unfortunately it is being grown across the world in some very damaging ways. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's really important to understand that soy can be a part of like a conservation agriculture type uh, farming system that um, can have other crops mixed in with it. Uh, can significantly reduce uh, the need to use synthetic fertilizers, even manure. Uh, it can be a great crop to grow uh, with just green manures uh, as part of like a stock-free farming system. So soy is a bad rap uh, from many angles, you know, the health, environmental angle. 
Um, and I think this is, you know, I think there's a reason why people think this. It's it's not just it's not just from poor education. It's from specific lobbying, marketing. Um, mm-hmm. This is something that happens deliberately from an industry that doesn't want you to shift in this way. So I'm going to get you to double click on that and say something controversial. Well, it shouldn't be controversial, but it might be for me. Um, so soy milk would be a better option from an environmental perspective than the most regenerative, regeneratively produced, most biodynamic, most organic, local farm next door dairy milk. By far, not even close. There you go. Yeah. What about precision fermentation? That that also, I think, deserves at least a quick mention here as a, a potential alternative to traditionally produced um, dairy, this idea of producing dairy proteins through microbes. Is that something that you've looked at? And um, do you see that as uh, being a, a part of the overall solution to Im- improving the the environmental friendliness of our diet going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to play a, a major role in the coming years. I think, um, uh, you know, there's not the environmental analysis of this because it's not something that's necessarily at scale, even though today um, I think it's 90% of, of cheese in the U.S. market is made with uh, rennet, which is produced through precision fer- fermentation, but it would be much less than would be um, done otherwise through through this other form. So, um, yeah, just in terms of what it would free up for land, uh, what it would free up for water, how much far less feed inputs would be involved, uh, that alone would make it something worth pursuing, worth mm-hmm. funding as much or more than uh, the dairy industry as a whole right now. Um, mm-hmm. With greenhouse gas emissions, too, it's, it's far less. Uh, there is, with precision fermentation, same with cultivated meat, there's a chance of greenhouse gases you know, being about a, a neutral point. Um, be, because if we don't decarbonize, I mean, mm-hmm. one, we're in trouble. We need to decarbonize our energy system, shift away from fossil fuels, um, ASAP. But say we don't, and say something like precision fermentation scales uh, very quickly, uh, then, you know, it might uh, use uh, a bit more CO2, um, or maybe about the same. Uh, you know, there's some studies that would be important to look at this specific metric, but putting in context still, this is why you can't just look at just CO2, because if it's going to free up all kinds of land, shift our food system in the way that we need to use far less water, then the net overall ecological picture would be beneficial mm. to, for, for supporting this technology. Right. Yeah. And if, if, if listeners want a little more information on that, they can go back into the archive, listen to the episode I did with Jared Rains, a biochemist on, on precision fermentation. Um, it's it's sort of some complex biochemistry, but in, in short, essentially you encode a, a microbe um, such that it can produce dairy proteins. You feed the microbes um, various foods and unlike an animal that's living and breathing and has a high basal metabolic rate where you have a very inefficient system, so you have to feed a lot of calories into a cow to get um, a very small amount of calories out in the form of meat or dairy, this has a much more efficient conversion rate. Um, but I think what you just mentioned there is, is is interesting because the facilities to produce this, they 
they require you know big production facilities with bioreactors that are going to use a lot of energy so it, it's, it's going to be important in the overall calculation um, to factor in how that energy is produced but as you say there are there are benefits over and beyond just the energy um, side of things maybe we can finish here by zooming out a, a, a tiny bit and sort of considering the type of people that are perhaps listening to this message and they're thinking about their own dietary pattern. And it gets me thinking about the Eat Lancet diet. So that's uh, a planetary health diet, I think is what the, the sort of um, the name um, of the actual diet, the Eat Lancet were the ones that produced that. I think it was two years ago now, a team of 30 plus scientists and researchers and food systems experts that came together. Um, we've spoken about it before. I wrote about it in my book as well. And, you know, they they recommend a very, very plant predominant to exclusive dietary pattern. There is the inclusion of, of animal products within that diet, I believe, um, dairy, the average sort of um, recommended intake is around 150 calories a day, which is probably about a cup of, of Greek yogurt. And at the same time, their recommendation for red meat was around, I think, 30 calories. So a very, very small amount of, of red meat per day. And I'm interested to to kind of hear from you on this. If someone's thinking, you know, I'm 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 not in the position to completely remove dairy from my diet. Maybe they will in the future, um, but they are thinking about shifting to this kind of more eat lancet dietary pattern, where there is not much red meat. There's there's a sort of small to moderate amount of of dairy in there. Um, how much better is that dietary pattern in terms of environmental? Uh, benefits that are up for grabs compared to a standard omnivorous diet, the standard Western diet that most people would be consuming? It, it's huge progress. I think this should be welcomed. Um, I think we should also be clear that, you know, a, an animal-free diet is better. Um, but I think as long as you're working your way there, um, I think that's important. Um, and I think what Eat Lancet is doing there, and I can't speak for them. I think they do phenomenal work. I think there's uh, all kinds of great work cited in there as well. Um, even though they may be uh, advocating for perhaps, maybe not advocating, but uh, like recommending a small amount of these diets, that's not because they see that the science shows that that is better than none. I think that's more like a a social um, consideration. Um you know, we're not in a, in a world uh, that is super friendly to eating fully plant-based. We just aren't. Accessibility has improved significantly, um, even over the last seven, eight years uh, in rich countries, but it's still not where it could be and it should be. Um, Eat Lancet also uh, looks at multiple countries uh, and they look at some countries that are developing poorer countries and it would be inappropriate to uh, advocate for fully plant-based diets when in many cases there, they don't have uh, even all the nutrients or, or basic needs that are met. So in some sense there, uh, some animal source foods that they can get access to would be helpful in the short term until a better global just uh, food distribution 
is figured out because that is a solution to improve food security, uh, improve access to resources, um, grow native appropriate cultural foods still, uh, and not appropriate Western dairy across the world, which, which is kind of happening. But like, so one, one research they quoted in, in the Eat Lancet, um, study, uh, was from Marco Springman. And, um, this looked at uh, a global switch to uh, a vegetarian diet and how much lives that would save globally, a huge amount, 7.3 million lives by, by 2050. Um, it also looked at how much you'd save by shifting to a fully plant-based diet and it would save 8.1 million lives. So this is a significant amount of lives we're talking, but you can see that you're already making a huge improvement by shifting in that direction. Um, and along the same lines, this is, uh, I don't think this is the same research he's done, but he's done some other work too in terms of what's some of the best ways you can respond to like the impacts of climate change that are coming uh, that we know are going to impact us no matter what we do right now. And uh, what that showed is one of the best ways you can kind of be more resilient to increase heat, increase climate impacts is uh, in improving uh, diet related health. Um, and almost all his research is advocating for um, a, a shift as far as possible to plant-based diets. Mm-hmm. So, this should be part of uh, all kinds of countries' systematic uh, designs of, of ways in which to respond and address climate change. And it's a great point that you made um, there about looking at um, other countries, you know, low socioeconomic status with food insecurity and just being careful that if the inclusion of moderate amounts of food, whether it's dairy or meat in that diet, makes that diet healthier. Um, We need to be careful extrapolating that to Western countries where our circumstances are very different. Our food availability and accessibility is is very different. So um, an important kind of reminder there. And not reverse it either, where sometimes sometimes people will say uh, we should increase meat and dairy in rich countries because uh, of food security issues in poor countries. Uh, I see that often too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really important to kind of look at things in, in the right context. Leave us with a bit of a look into the future here. Um, with everything that you've observed, both in the research and by watching on and looking at the dairy industry, looking at plant-based alternatives, looking at innovative technology like precision fermentation, how is this landscape going to change over the next 10 to 20 years? What would you like to see and what do you think we'll see? Let me first frame this with like a whole lot of uncertainty. It's very difficult to predict the future, of course, but um, it's an exercise I think about often. It's an exercise I think about, you know, what it's going to take to get there and uh, what it takes to really initiate the change that we need. Um, So specific to dairy, I think you're going to see continued greenwashing uh, from major dairy conglomerates. Uh, these da- dairy conglomerates are not going to be reporting their emissions. Um, of all the 13 top dairy companies in the world, there's no regulations for them to be held accountable to their emissions year over year, like there is, say, in like the fossil fuel industry now. So there needs to be. But you're going to see continued greenwashing until there's like demands to do that. Um, you're going to see continued lobbying to set up these kind of production schemes that continue dairy production despite demand dropping. Um, we're gonna see a major, major push for uh, dairy in 
poor and medium income countries. Um, I think dairy, the, the major focus right now is, is China and even India and a little bit uh, to a lesser extent, Africa. Uh, they're attempting to extrapolate this kind of Western version of dairy elsewhere, which I think is, is very damaging on many levels. Um, that being said, uh, I think it's clear that we've hit peak demand for dairy in rich countries. I think that's clear. It's, it's dropping and it's dropping despite insidious marketing, um, highly paid academics still publishing research on what, whether it's the nutritional or environmental benefits of dairy. Um, so despite all that happening, demand is still dropping. People are switching away from dairy for a number of different reasons. So I think with that, you're going to see continued dairy farms closing and, uh, you know, livelihoods change there. Some farmers will be shifting towards doing, uh, plant proteins, uh, growing different um, things to shift their business, perhaps some conservation farming too. Uh, hopefully they can be rewarded for for some ecological stewardship in that sense. Uh, and with those kind of smaller dairy closures, you're going to see consolidation and kind of dairy companies getting bigger and bigger, uh, but just few, very few of them and much less of like kind of like a democracy. So with this, I think if I could estimate with like, you know, the demand dropping, new technologies like precision fermentation uh, coming on, plant-based milks continuing to get better and eat into market share uh, despite not much kind of government uh, support. Um, I, I think probably in the next six to eight years, probably by the end of the 2020s, you're going to see major, major disruption to the dairy industry. Um, and I think out of any animal source foods that that I've studied and looked at alternatives, I would say the dairy industry, as big as it is, is probably the most vulnerable to to major disruption um, for all these reasons that I've I've listed. And I think if people care, if people individually uh, demand change, uh, stop allowing these these companies to operate um, not like a business and get handouts no matter what the demand is. Uh, people need to care to, to, to kind of see this change. Um, and, and if people do, then we're going to start seeing um, that change around in that timeline, I think. And as I think what's going to happen, if I could kind of estimate a bit more precisely, as tech advances for dairy alternatives, uh, specifically precision fermentation and, uh, and plant milks, I think you're, you're going to see some of the, the big kind of restaurant giants like, say someone like McDonald's, maybe towards the end of the 2020s, if I could just kind of make this random prediction here that probably will be difficult to, to, to pinpoint being right. But if McDonald's were to pick up it as, um, for whatever reason, for perhaps because they're making uh, dairy that is dairy, but it's made through precision fermentation, uh, maybe they're even allowed to call it milk, which I think they should be able to because it is milk. It's just not uh, through the same process as before. Uh, then what you're going to see is McDonald's achieving the these kind of like uh, shareholder pressures of being more environmentally friendly because they're not able to do that now. They're not even close to doing that now. And they're going to continue getting pressure uh, from shareholders to at least be seen as more environmentally friendly, even if they won't be able to get all the way there. So as soon as you see that, you're going to see a bit of a tip over the edge, I think, and you're going to see a, a, a major disruption to this industry as a whole. And uh, that could be no better for the environment. And I think that could be a, a test bed for 
all kinds of other aspects of agriculture that are are damaging. Yeah, there definitely seems to be less uh, barriers in, from a technical point of view in in the uh, production of animal free milk or dairy proteins through precision fermentation compared to say cellular agriculture creating beef um, which hopefully will come to fruition as well but it seems like it is a bit more technical and we're already starting to see um, some whey proteins um, both in 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 the use of different products in America but also as whey protein isolates that are made through precision fermentation and are, are animal free so it's 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 happening um, it'll be really interesting to see at what speed these changes um, take place. Nicholas, this has been great. There's um, a lot in here, I think, for people to to consider um, with regards to their own food choices that they're making. We've mentioned a number of resources, the Our World and Data. I'll, I'll pop a link to that resource. Eat Lancet, of course. Um are there, are there any other resources that you want to make the listener aware of that we can put into the show notes, your website um, included? Yeah, so a lot of my uh, independent research and uh, continued work is with uh, plantbaseddata.org and you can find uh, now kind of like a summary of some of the, 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 the most reputable, uh, what I think is backed by good consensus stats in this place. Um, we're going to be continuing to kind of kind of simplify a lot of the peer-reviewed data we have on there. Uh, of course, if people want to dive into the studies, there's folders and folders of open access folders people uh, of studies that people can read into. Um, and um, yeah, that'd be probably the best place to to, to check out and uh, reach out on to, to me on Twitter and, or Instagram. Those are the main two that I, I mostly uh, am at and, uh, and really just happy to connect with your community because uh, it's been so great over the years to connect with so many great people that um, are at different levels of their journey working on this with me because it takes a huge movement to really create the change we need to see. And uh, you got that. That it does. And you're doing a, a wonderful job. So thank you very much. Really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to doing this again sometime soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.